If you would, find your place in God's word in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For those of you who have been uh, able to hear me preach, I am not a short person. That is in time frame. But today I will attempt to be. And I lay heavy emphasis on the word attempt. Um, <clears throat> In the epistle of 1 John, chapter 3, verse number 11, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. The word of God reads, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide in love is in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that we that he laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. By the spirit whom he has given us. Isaiah tells us that the earth shall soon grow old like a garment, and the inhabitants thereof shall die in like manner. But the word of God and the salvation of our Lord shall abide forever. Isaiah 53 and six, 56 and 3. Our sermon today is entitled, Loving Christ by Loving the Church. Loving Christ by loving the church. In our culture today, we often hear the word thrown around very loosely with very cavalier meaning. I love you. I love you. Husbands say it to wives all the time. I love you. Parents to children. I love you. Friends to other friends. I love you. And in the South, It is of our culture to say that we love our enemies, whether we do or not. In our sermon today, we will focus on the unique nature of Christ's indissoluble union with his body, head Christ, and his body, the church, considering the nature of this indissoluble union, this inseparable union, this one bodiness, this oneness of Christ with his body, how can we love Christ and not love his church? That would be a question that we all must answer in light of what is shared with us on today. Many today throw this word around, love, and what is really meant by love is not the love of God, but it is really Uh, an infatuation of sorts. 
It is a love that exists and persists out of something someone has done for us, are doing for us, or will do for us. Jesus tells us this in the book of Matthew. He says concerning the love of our enemies that we are no different from the, from the Gentile, from the lost individuals, if we love, and Christ uses the term love, if we love those who love us. You see, it is not unique to Christians only to love, for the world has a form of love, and their love is based out of how they, how they feel at the moment. It's based out of their sentiments, their emotions, what has been done to them or, or that which has been withheld from them. I love you because of, the world says. But as we will well note in our text today, that this is far a far cry, far different from the love that is commanded according to Scripture. It is here that the Apostle John will make some very clear and direct statements to the sheep of Christ. That, dear brothers and sisters, you cannot love Christ if you do not love the church. Now, by church, I do not mean brick and mortar lights and sound systems and pulpits and carpet and chairs. But what I what I want to specifically direct this to is the person that is sitting with you and next to you in this local assembly and all the churches of Christ throughout the world. That the Apostle John will make a very clear, direct and specific statement that you cannot love head if at any point you reject the smallest part of the body. Well, that changes the nature and the tone by which we deal with how we live out the gospel in community with one another. You see, it is natural to this dusty flesh to reject those who reject us. It is natural to this frail and to this fallen flesh to love those who who praise us and who lift us up and who seem to be a part of our crowd. Jesus says you behave like sinners if that's all you do. But the Apostle John will shine a direct light upon how we ought to live with Christians in light of our high view of Christ. Simply put, you cannot love Jesus if you do not love one another. I used to say in my early days of Christianity, oh, nothing will stop me from loving Jesus. There was a time in Christendom where everyone wore a T-shirt that said, Jesus freak. We've heard the statements, I am sold out for Christ. I love the Lord. Yet all too often and with a great sense of ease, we despise one another silently, silently. All too often we are not swift to run to the aid of the brethren. John will say all too often we have this world's goods and we refuse to share with our brethren because it is mine. I worked hard for it. You cannot have it. And we go away feeling justified. Sounds like the Pharisee to me, doesn't it? John Gill said, Christian love has God for its primary object and expresses itself first of all an implicit obedience to God's commands. Christian love has God as its primary object and expresses itself, first of all, in implicit obedience to his commands. What's unique is, is that culturally, that, you know, it doesn't matter what what community you've come from, we, we've all understood love to be this, this emotional energy that, that wells up in us, that makes us happy about the person, and, and we love them. 
Oh, I love them because they give me what I want. They love me because I love them because they've never hurt me. I love them because they speak well of me and, and they make me feel good and they make me feel whole and they make me feel, feel complete. But contrary to popular belief, the scripture teaches something more grander. It's that love actually has to do with keeping God's commandments as God has prescribed them toward your neighbor. And when you do that with the right motive, with the right heart, in truth, then do you love your neighbor. Even if you don't feel it. If you would simply indulge me by turning with me to the book of John, that is the gospel of John. And I want you O sheep of Christ, to hear what he has to say. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, this great love letter of Christ to his church, that where he is, there you shall be also. He expresses his love in the fact that he will pay for their sins, that he will ascend on high, The writer of Hebrews says, after having made a purification for sin, he is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. Hebrews goes on to say where he is ever living to intercede eternally for his people. Christ in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, speaks of his love and the foundation of Christian hope that Christ has ascended on high and that he will come back again and receive us unto his own. And so the imagery is of a man who has engaged a woman and he is telling her up front that I must go away and I must prepare a place for you and I to reside and live. But when I come back, I will join myself to you and we will never be separated. He professes his love for the church and that he will lay down his life for her that he will sanctify her, that he will prepare a place for her, that he will keep her in this present age, in this present world, but he will come back again and receive her unto his own, and I will take you, my church, with me, and you will forever be with me. Hmm. But he says something else to his bride, to the church. He says, now, if you love me, verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23. And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father and I will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. The scripture over and over again throughout its text also in the book of 1 John, constantly recounts the love of God being revealed to us in the sending and the giving of his son. God's love is manifested to us. Christ's love to the Father and for his church is manifested in him giving his life. In the affirmative sense, he lived a perfect life on our behalf that he may fulfill all righteousness for his church, for his people, for his body, for you. Secondarily, it is revealed in his passive obedience. Though he was not guilty, he gave his life for those who were. 
submitted himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, because his love was manifested, first of all, to the father and keeping that eternal covenant that he would come and redeem a people. His love was manifested to us by living perfectly, by obeying God's law perfectly, by suffering perfectly, by giving his holiness unto the filth of the grave. He rose again. He sits in heaven. He intercedes for you and I. He will come again and receive us unto his own. You see, his love was revealed in action, and Christ says to his church and to his bride that your love is revealed in lawfulness and keeping my command. What command? Well, John is going to tell us the command to love one another. So we ask ourselves the question, why, why is it so important from the text, as we will notice, to, to love one another? Why the great emphasis? Why, why is it that I can't divorce my love for Christ uh, from maybe how I treat you and you? Well, it is in the book of Ephesians that we find the great answer to this, the mystery that is being revealed to the church at Ephesus and the mystery that is being revealed to us in Ephesians chapter 5. Swiftness and brevity is not my strong suit. So it is in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32. That the Apostle Paul, after speaking to the church at Ephesus concerning how wives and husbands ought to live in union together, he reveals to us something that is profound. That in verse 31, he quotes Genesis chapter 2 concerning the one flesh nature and the one flesh union of the husband and wife dynamic. And Paul, Paul reaches back into the Genesis, into the, to the beginning of Scripture. And he says that the two shall become one flesh, in verse 31. And Paul says, and here is the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages. That the mystery of the first union, the mystery of the head and body, the mystery of the husband and wife dynamic, the mystery of marriage, this profound mysterion is this. As though Adam and Eve were joined in holy union. The picture of what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is far greater than Adam and Eve. Paul says, I am telling you now that the mystery is that it was speaking of Christ in the church. What then is the mystery there? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he is the head of us. Chapter 11, pardon me, says that he is the head of the body. He is the head of man. The scripture recounts for us over and over again in timeless ways that we, the church, are the body of Christ. So when you think about the union of Adam and Eve, the the communion that they had together, the inseparable, the indissoluble nature of what God had joined together, this was a picture of how head and body would be joined together inseparably. Paul says that marriage was really showing a a greater meta-narrative over and above what we read in the text. Is that when we look at the first marriage, it is really a picture of Christ, the head, and the church, the body. And as all of you fathers today know, all of you husbands know, that to despise a man's wife in any way, in the smallest of ways, is to despise the man himself. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 40 and 45. He says, what you have done unto the least of my people, to the the smallest of my people, you have done to me. Why? Because every 
Christian upon whom Christ's blood has flowed, they are his body. And how you treat the body is a direct representation of how you view the head. It is at this point that we must all question our hearts. How have you treated the brethren? It is the right of Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. Don't stop it. Don't impede its progress. Don't get in the way. Let it continue. Let it grow. Let it flourish. Let it have its perfect way. Don't stop it. Don't mute it. Don't silence it. But let it continue. Fan that flame of brotherly love that it may continue to catch a fire throughout the local church, throughout the churches of Christ, throughout the world. This indissoluble nature, this inseparable nature of head and body of the church in Christ is revealed in the persecution of the apostle Paul, Saul, man Saul of Tarsus, in Acts chapter 9. If you recount the story, good Sunday schoolers, then you well note that Paul is on a mission to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And many of men have sought the same mission, but they've all failed. Paul Sauter, with all of his strength, he is carrying about with a high priestly edict to throw into jail and to cast into chains all those who name the name of Christ and on the road call straight as he is headed to Damascus. Their Christ shines and overcomes him with the power of his glory, with the brightness of his love. And he asks a question. Why persecute my church? No, that's not what he says. Though Paul is throwing Christians into jail, though he is jailing believers, Jesus says to Saul of Tarsus, why do you persecute me? It is here that the famed Puritan Thomas Watson would say that it is only when the church is attacked, when the body is attacked and under great distress, that her head will speak from heaven. Hmm. When we attack his body, then the head will speak. Why persecutest thou me? You see, because Paul laid not one finger upon Christ physically. Paul was not in the opinion court of Pontius Pilate. He was not a part of the kangaroo court and jury. Yet Christ says, in your persecution of my church, you have persecuted me. Shows the nature of that one flesh union. Paul, Paul goes on to, the, to, to, to expand this in the nature of the husband and wife dynamic. No man having loved his own body, does anything to destroy it. Goes on to say, oh, husbands, your body doesn't belong to you. Oh, wives, your body does not belong to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but it belongs to the other. The deep, inseparable nature in which we as husbands and wives, we, we fail to lift up. Sometimes husbands do some very crazy things Someone shall bring it to the attention of the wife, and depending on how she feels, she'll say, that's right. He did it. And there are times when the wife may overspend, and someone will well note, hey, your wife has a spending problem. And you'll say, she surely does. You see, at times we do attack our own body, don't we? At times we do dismantle it, don't we? But Christ never dismantles his own body. 
but he continues to intercede for her. He stands as her mediator always. He never sides against her. He is always working for her eternal benefit. And he will not stand idly by as she is persecuted. For those who love him must also love his bride. And he says that love is displayed in the keeping of commandments. What does it mean to love Christ? What does it mean to be in love with Jesus? To love Christ and to be in love with Jesus is not apart from the lawful keeping of his truth. Now, by lawful keeping, I don't want you to think that I'm being a legalist, that I'm seeking to erect a list of do's and don'ts. Well, that would be an issue with the heart now, wouldn't it? But Christ says love has to do with with how you view my commandments, how you're in love with what I've said. You would desire to keep it. We think of those times of courtship that we've seen in the in the in the dusty flesh of human courtship. That when a young woman is in love. Everything that man says, she hangs on every single word. He says the sky is purple and she tells her parents the sky is purple. Her parents would look at her and say, no, the sky is blue. She says, no, but John said the sky was purple, so it is purple. They hang on every word from his lip. Because herein is the love manifested that I I want what he wants. I love what he loves. I am concerned for what he is concerned for. Jesus loves his church. He loves her so much that he gave his life for her. He loves her so much that he ever intercedes on her behalf, sanctifying her by his spirit. He loves her dearly. He died for her. He lived perfectly for her. He intercedes for her. He will come back for her. How do you love her? And by her, I mean you. And by you, I mean the person sitting next to you. How do you view Christians? How do you view the church of the Lord Jesus? Let us look at John, 1 John chapter 3, our text for this morning. That was a very swift introduction. My grandpa used to say he was a pastor for 35 years. Hold on and buckle your seatbelt. We're going for a ride. In John's epistle here, he, in verse 11, says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. This is the gospel message that you have heard. This is the nature of Christ speaking that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is what Christ has been been preaching to his church. This is what the Bible spends a great deal of time reminding us of. Why? Because by nature, how quickly do we forget? First Peter, Peter writes to second Peter, he writes to the church and he says that I have need to remind you of these things. Why do we have to keep being reminded? Why do we have to constantly endeavor, work hard, press in to keeping the unity of the spirit in a bond of peace? Why do we have to continue in brotherly love, letting brotherly love continue? Because by this old dusty flesh, it will fight against it. Offenses yet remain. We offend one another. We say things to one another. We treat one another in very unhealthy ways. And at that point, it is very easy to slip into apathy concerning one another. 
which leads to secret despising of one another, which leads to hatred of one another. And as we shall see from Scripture, John calls that person a murderer. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. There is no new thing that I write to you. There is nothing new here that I am telling you, John says. You should love one another. Why? Oh, sheep of Christ, because this is what he has commanded you to do. So now John will write in verses 12 through 13. A a negative view to, to affirm the positive truth here. He says in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brothers. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And so here then is the is the is the negative statement here, the the negative text to show whose side we align with, whose side we pledge our allegiance to when we do not act lovingly towards one another. John says that at that point we are no different than Cain. We're no different than the murderer. Because the truth is we do not and are not at that moment keeping Christ's commands. That is to live out God's commandments lawward towards our brothers. John will go on to tell us that we must lay down our life for the brethren. This is an act of love. This is how we know that we have been changed. This is how we know that we have passed from death to life. It is revealed in our actions and the motive of our actions. It has to do essentially with this. That I am not loving the church, the people of God, until I act toward them as God in Scripture has commanded. No matter how much I profess to love them. No matter how I feel. No matter how my emotions may be high about them. Until I am lowered toward them as God has commanded. Then am I loving them. Verse 13, he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. How does John now interject this into the text? What does this have to do with the text? See, it is only the world that hates Christians. You see, it is only the world that hates the church. You see, it is it is only the world that acts contrary to God's word towards the church. Are you of the world? John says in in John First John chapter five and and verse one, he says that everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. When we love Christ, we love his church. When we love Christ, we press into him, we read his commands, we study his word, we worship him with our whole life. And when we love Christ, the head, in such a way, then we do not neglect to separate ourselves from that which he loves, that is the local church. His people, the church, the church universal, as it is revealed in our context of the local church. It is only those who do not know God who will act in unlawful manners towards the people of God. Can we love God? Can we love Christ and yet hate our neighbor? Can we love Christ and yet not lay down our life for the brethren? 
As a matter of fact, in the sermon I preached, the, the by this we knows as we go through 1 John, 1 John, uh, John places some very clear characteristics, some very clear truths, some very clear evidences, whether or not we love God, whether or not we've been born of truth. Do you love the brethren? Verse 14. We know this. We can have assurance of this, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We can know this. What then is love? Love has to do with keeping God's law towards our fellow brethren. Love has to do with acting lawfully towards one another. And John says, whoever does not perform this, whoever does not do this, whoever does not act in such a manner. Not only does love not abide in that person, but John says he abides in death. He is yet dead. Dead in what? Dead in his sins. He is yet dead in his sins, for it is only those who have been risen with Christ. It is only those whose lives, according to Colossians chapter 3, are hidden with Christ on high, can love in this way. The one who abides in life loves as Christ loved. The one who abides in death cannot. As Jesus is in the Beatitudes preaching on retaliation or teaching his pupils uh, with regard to retaliation, he says that that you must be like your heavenly father. Look at what he does. He reigns on the just as well as the unjust. He reigns on those who deserve it and those who do not. He says, and when you act in this way, then are you children of your father? When you love in this manner, then are you children of your father? How so? Because it is only by the spirit of God that we can love those who seem so unlovable. It is only by the spirit of God that we work energetically, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in a bond of peace. It is only through the spirit of God that we are empowered to do such a thing. For Christians, I said, there's only two two ways to determine this about ourselves. Either we can or we can't. Either we can love in this way or we cannot. For us who've been born again, it is not a matter that, that we can't love past the conflict. It is not that we cannot love past the differences. But it is a matter that we won't, that we will not forgive. And John tells us that to continue in this type of practice, to continue in this type of lawlessness, is a clear proof that we are a liar. First John chapter 4. In verse 20, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we've had from the beginning. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we cannot love in this manner, it may be because we're not a Christian. If we will not love in this manner, God will chastise us. And so when we think about the nature of of Christ the head and the church, uh, the body, we must ask some, some some pretty clear and direct questions to ourselves. Do I love Christ? Well, if the answer is yes, John says you, you, I, we have not laid eyes upon him. But then again, we have. As we lay eyes upon his body. We behold the beauty of his body. 
yet we have not seen the beauty of his face. You cannot love him who you have not seen. John says if you're not willing to manifest this love by laying down your lives for one another, who you do see. In other words, you can't love Christ and not be intimately involved and in love with this church. Why? Because they're inseparable. They're inseparable. And Paul says this has been the mystery from the beginning, that Christ will join himself to his bride and he will never leave her. He will ever sanctify her. He will eternally love her. As it has been revealed in the keeping of his father's commands towards her, fulfilling all righteousness on her behalf. Do you love Christ? Do you love his people? That is to say, do you love his church? John tells us that everyone who does not love in this manner is not only one who hates, but he says at the root of it, it is, it is also a murderer. That person is also a murderer, one who, one who kills. John Gill says here that it is one who killeth the soul, despises the soul of the one whom Christ have made alive. That in the hatred of our brothers, we're not simply hating them. We're hating Christ. For they are new creations. They are new creatures. Christ lives within them. How do you respond to them? This is why Paul, in the midst of, of, we often talk about racial tension today, but we need only read Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, and we see some serious, serious tension there, dear brothers and sisters. Historically, two opposing groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, brought together by the, by the power of the gospel in one church, and there, there's infighting. Jews beating their chests concerning their covenantal rights. Kind of sounds like Reformed Baptist and Presbyterianism myself. Beating their chest because they were the people of God. Second class citizenry in the church. Infighting and bickering. And to them the Apostle Paul preaches by the inspiration of the Spirit. He writes to them, you had better work very hard to keep the unity of the Spirit. And the bond of peace, because if if you break it, the, the, the great mystery is that when you break that, you're seeking to divide Christ's body. So you had better be careful. You had better work diligently to keep it. To not let the sun go down on your wrath. To be careful how you live out community with one another. Because, dear brothers and sisters, what you are touching is Christ. You are touching his body. Be careful how we deal with one another. Be careful. In verses 16 through 17, the Apostle John deals with the practical application, a practical outworking in verses 16 through 17 of how this love is revealed. Verse 16, by this we know that, that, that he, we know love because he, he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
So the, the commandments of God are to, be, are to be lived out and expressed, not just something that is verbally proclaimed, I love you, but it ought to manifest itself in action. God's love was manifested in action in sending his son. Christ's love was manifested in action in giving his life. You see, that there, can be, there can be no true love apart from action. There can be no true love apart from, from, from laying our lives down. And let me tell you what, that is hurtful and that is painful. It doesn't feel good. A.W. Pink says concerning the atoning work of Christ, that upon the cross, God did not pour out his wrath upon Christ as if he was a sinner. But A.W. Payne says God poured out his wrath upon Christ as if he was the very mass and source of all from which all sin came. Though he had not sinned in any way, he did not treat him as as a singular sinner, but he treated him as if he was the source, the root from which all sin came, so that he may perfectly pour out his wrath upon Christ, that Christ may perfectly drink of it and that he may perfectly perfectly fulfill all righteousness for his people you see Jesus loves his church that much so ought we not be careful how we treat her It is upon this in my meditation, I said, Lord, I will put my finger over my mouth that I may not speak against your people. It ought to change how gracious our tone is. It ought to change how we, how we, for, how, how we, how we deal with one another. It, it, it ought to change how, how, how we not go one mile, but now we go two. Because I understand what I am touching. I am dealing uniquely with the one for whom Christ drank the full cup of God's wrath to save. See, now, that changes how we deal with one another, doesn't it? That, that ought to change how we view one another. That ought to change how we, how we see the church. She is not just a collection of individuals who come on the Lord's day. She, you, we are a full collection of what Christ died for. And as with the Apostle Paul, he would not stand idly by and see her persecuted. How do you love Christ? I will tell you it cannot be seen apart from how we operate with one another. Loving Christ does not reveal itself in individual set-apartness. I love Jesus, but I have nothing to do with the church. I love Jesus, but I have nothing to do with Christians. I love Jesus, and I'll do it in my basement, in my home, and in my closet by myself. The one who sets himself or herself away from the body must ask themselves a deep internal question, whose body are you a part of? For if my heart were to separate itself from my flesh, I would die. If my lungs were to separate itself from my flesh, I would die. If you have been truly regenerated, think of what you're doing to the body and separating yourself from her. Several years back, I had a surgery on my having appendectomy. And as a 100% USDA male, right, we don't complain. And so I felt a sharp pain in my abdomen for three days, my abdomen for three days, and I was still working. And they said, oh, James, you need to go get that checked out. And I said, yeah, it'll be fine. And so that was Monday. And by Tuesday, you know, I began to walk just a little bent over. And everyone says, well, are you okay? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Just something going on with my stomach. Not sure. 
And by day three, which was a Wednesday, I was just barely creeping around at a very slow and meager pace, shuffling as it were. But I had to go to work because like good men, we go to work when we're sick. That's being a man. And so I worked the entire day and I decided I would take off early. So I left 21 minutes early and I never forget it. And so on Thursday, I saw the kids off to school and on my way back into the house, I collapsed right there in the hallway. And I, I said, oh, something's wrong. And being a good man, I didn't call the ambulance because I just love paying that much for health care, although I don't use it. So I did not call an ambulance, but I pulled myself together and I put on some clothing and I went to the emergency room. And I drove myself there, which I selfishly prided myself on that, putting all passengers in harm's way. But I arrived to the emergency room only to crawl out of the car and they immediately rushed me into surgery. And the last thing I remembered was counting backwards from 10. I got to nine and that was it because I did not think that stuff would work on me. So I woke to the next morning and they had explained to me again what had taken place. And so I had one question. So what's the use of my appendix? And so they give you this cavalier answer. Oh, nothing really, but it's a long story. So I Google while I'm recovering, like a good American. So I, I Googled, and everyone's saying, you know, not a whole lot. And so I begin to read the scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14. And I realized that even the smallest, most insignificant part of my body, when, when it is not acting in accord with the rest of the body, can, can destroy the whole person. Then I realized that even when we do the, the smallest, most insignificant things, when we, when we rebel rouse, when we, when we fight in the smallest, most seemingly insignificant way, We're introducing something in a body that seems very harmless. But there's an enemy who will come and who will fan it. And it will grow. And it will grow. And I realize and and, and do believe that this is is what, what John is saying. That we not only lay down our lives for the brothers because we understand that we are part of something greater. And when one of us, when the the least of us seeks to live lovingly in that manner, we are introducing something that that has the, the potential to besmirch and to unsettle what Christ has died for. John says our love is revealed and how we act lawfully towards one another. And that lawfulness and that lawful love is revealed in how we serve one another with our lives, our talent, and our treasure. In verses 19 through 24, John specifically deals with the Assurance that comes when we know that we are in love with Christ and his body. The assurance that we know. That we can have reliability of heart to know. That if we love Christ and we love his body. That we truly are in love with Jesus. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Now this this is not to say that you ought to, by some wicked standard, say, well, my heart feels good about the situation, so I think I love it. 
But what John is essentially saying here is, 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 is when it is manifested, when it is re- revealed in you that there is still some, some wantonness of love towards your brother, is it not your heart revealing to you that love is lacking, that we must press in more, that love is not actively abiding? Now, those who don't have the right view would look at this and they would say, well, I feel good about that person. But what John is is essentially saying is that there is never a point that your heart will ever allow you to walk away saying that I've loved them enough. It will always make manifest that there is more. So that every day you see them, you will give more. And he says in verse 22, something that is, is very uh, loving and, and passionate here. He says that, and we know that at this point, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. The question is, what, what is the context of this? What is the context of this? The context is loving one another. The context is serving one another. That is the context of the passage. This is what John is talking about. So, so what are we in need of? What are, what are we asking for? We're asking for for God's strength to abide actively and presently, giving us strength upon more strength to love this person more and more. People are difficult. And some of us are just downright crazy. And I can be both. You have been loved by the eternal God who has granted you unending access to his kingdom to draw from the wellspring of graces that he has given us all freely of which love yet abides in. There is no one far reaching. There is no one outside of the scope of God's love in you. There is no person that we can't get along with. There is no person we just turn away because they're too difficult. You have been loved with infinite love. You have been given infinite access to infinite love. Which means that no person, no brother, no sister is outside of the scope of your love. Because the source from which you Get that love is an unending source. You are not pulling from your own source of love. You're pulling from love itself, and God is love. He is unending, He is eternal, and there is no one whom you abide in fellowship with that you cannot love. John tells us that God loved us first. Paul tells us that he commissioned his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. John says not that we first loved God, but he first loved us. He poured out his eternal, infinite, unending love upon us. And then he gave us that love in us. And then he tells us to ubiquitously, universally pour it out unendingly upon one another. So as we think about this in application, how are we loving the church? How are we loving Christ's wife? How are we loving her? Because they are both the church in Christ involved in an eternal, indissoluble, inseparable union. 
of which he eternally lives to make intercession for her. And on that final day when he shall come back to receive her unto his own, Thessalonians says that he, Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica tells us that he will avenge all those who have sorrowed her. Will that be you? Will that be you? What then is our hope? How then are we to change? What will change us? What will change us to love one another more is by loving Christ more. To love Jesus, you will love his church. To become more uh, uh, immersed in Christ, you will love his people more. You see, it was his love that brought you here. It, it then is his love that, that will cause us to love one another. See, the true barometer of your love for Christ is revealed in how you live it out with this body. For those who do not know Christ, the Bible says that you're, you, you, you don't love God as much as you say that you do. The Bible says you do not love him, but the Bible says that you hate him. The Bible says that you are his enemy. The Bible says that you, you hate him with your actions, though you may say that you love him and everything that you do wars against his kingdom. And apart from Christ, God will judge you eternally and you will be found guilty on all charges. What then is your hope? The only hope that you have is the one whom you hate. Christ. He alone fulfilled our righteousness to justify you and make you the very righteousness of himself in the presence of Christ, in the presence of the Father. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He alone is the forgiver of sin. He alone is the one who gives us right standing before God. Man is like the grass of the field. And his beauty is like the flower of the field. The breath of the Lord shall blow upon it, and the grass shall wither, and the flower shall fade, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. Let us pray. Father, heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Father, it is in the wonderful reminder of the love that you have put forward towards us in the person of Christ that our hearts are overwhelmed in the call to love one another. Father, we know that in our own strength we cannot do this work. But we thank you that in the love, in the beloved, you have given us your spirit which we are made children of you, which we are empowered to do your will, which we have access to all the storehouses of grace. And yet we must confess that we have not loved as we ought to. And Lord, at times we've not even had a desire to love as we ought But we thank you that the kingdom that we have received, the unshakable kingdom, is not built upon our own action and our own strength. But it is built upon the one who remains forever. We thank you that we can go to him today in confession and repentance. Knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And so, Lord, we confess 
this day that we have not loved you as we ought because we have not loved your body as we ought. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear that we may know that when we look upon one another, when we gaze upon one another, we are gazing upon your work, your workmanship. Let us be careful how we touch your workmanship, how we create malice and strife against your workmanship. Lord, we pray for those who do not know you in the pardon of their sin. That, God, you would rescue them. That you would save them from the wrath that will be poured out upon them because they have not believed in your name. May they be a part of that great gathering and festival praise that we too are a part of now, but that we will eternally be a part of then. May they be able to gather with us. Would you grant them saving faith that they may gather with us and sing that new song? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. Would you grant them faith to see? Would you grant us grace to live it out? that the nations may rejoice. That it all may be done for your glory and for our joy. For truly, Father, you do all things well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.